following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. evening is taken from Luke chapter 11 verses 1 to 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished one of his disciples said to him, Lord teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray say, Father hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight, and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello. So this is the last in our sermon series on prayer and it's fitting that the focus is on the Lord's Prayer, a prayer which goes back 2,000 years and has a unique place in our faith. The Pilgrim Book on the Lord's Prayer describes how the prayer was used in the earliest days when Christians were first learning about the faith. People would prepare for baptism as adults and it would take two or three years and build up to being baptised at Easter. And during the season of Lent in the final bit of their journey, the bishop would hand over and teach them about some of the greatest treasures of the Christian faith. One of the most important of those was the Lord's Prayer. It was only taught to and said by Christians. It was one of the special things you were given as you prepared for your baptism. You would learn it by heart and teach it to your whole household. So this prayer has been used by every generation of Christians that has ever lived. It's prayed all over the world, every day, in virtually every language. It's prayed morning and night, at our best and worst times. I've prayed it at weddings and baptisms and funerals. So let's look at it more closely. It appears in both Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. There are some differences between the two, but it's essentially the same prayer. Our reading today was from Luke, so I'm going to focus on the four verses in Luke which contain the Lord's Prayer. It starts simply at verse 1. 
One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now Jesus prayed a lot, I mean a lot. Before big decisions, after major events, at times of crisis, he was ever disappearing up into mountains or into the deserts to pray. He was always at it. And the disciples noticed. A lesson here for parents of children among you. So they asked Jesus to teach them to pray as he does. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Okay, there are six key words here. Father, hallowed, kingdom, bread, forgive, and temptation. Let's look at each in turn. Father. Right, starting a prayer by addressing God as Father was novel. This was not how people were used to praying. The God of Judaism was all-powerful. Jews wouldn't even say the divine name. It was very rare indeed for God to be addressed in Jewish prayer as Father. But this is exactly what Jesus tells them to do. And of course it's what Jesus does himself. But I do wonder what image the word Father would have summoned up for them. Now fathers were serious authority figures in Jewish culture and in Roman culture. In fact, a Roman father could literally decide to have a child whipped or killed or sold. His power was pretty much absolute. As David Lucas said in his great sermon last week, too many people still have an image of God the Father as an all-powerful, disapproving God who needs placating. But the Gospels prevent a very different picture of a loving father who just wants the best for his children. We think of the story of the prodigal son, the son who's abandoned his father and squandered his inheritance, but when he's finally so desperate he has to come home, his father spots him and runs towards him, flings his arms around him and gives him the warmest welcome imaginable. That's God the Father, a God overflowing with love and grace, who's constantly scanning the horizon to see if we're coming home. But to call God Father is also really intimate. But in the Bible, we see Jesus cry out, my father, or even Abba, an Aramaic word used by children to address their fathers, more like dad. The bishop and theologian Leslie Newbigin spent much of his life working in India, and he sometimes found himself reverting to an Indian dialect word, because like many bilingual people, he found some things were just better described using a word from another language. So he says the gospels were written in Greek, but there are two words that only ever appear in Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke. So when the Gospels came to be written down, the voice of Jesus saying those words in his own language survived. One of those words is Amen, and the other is Abba. Now Newbigin sees this as a marker of the overwhelming importance in Jesus' life, of that intimacy with the Father. And now he's inviting the disciples then and us now to experience the same thing. All of that from just one word. Okay, next up, hallowed. Hallowed be your name. A name in this context is more than a label. It signifies the essence of a person. So this is about hallowing God. To hallow something is to make it holy or revere it. 
but God already is holy, like by definition, like that's what holy is. So maybe this is a request that God will act in such a way that everyone will acknowledge him as God. So when we pray this bit, Bishop Steve Croft says, we're praying that God's very nature will be honoured in every way, everywhere, for all time. But what would that look like? Well, to answer that, we need to look at the next word, kingdom, and the next request, your kingdom come. Now, if like me, you learnt this prayer in school, you may find yourself adding, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what I was taught. And that is there in Matthew's version, but it's not there in Luke. Now, the kingdom of God isn't like just another place. The kingdom of God is where God's rule applies, where everything conforms to God's ways. When that happens, God's will is being done. So arguably, Matthew's just repeating himself. When God's kingdom comes, God's will is being done. So what will that look like? Well, the Bible paints wonderful pictures of the kingdom of God, characterised by upside-down values. It's where oppression is ended, where captives are freed, where the wolf lies down with the lamb, where swords are beaten into plowshares, where justice rolls down from the hills, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where everything is finally as it was meant to be. So we're praying for God to overturn the powers at work in the world and establish his reign. Now we know it's only going to happen in full at the end of time, but with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God began to break into this world. So when we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying to change this world and its values, to turn them upside down. But that means we're also praying to change ourselves. Now you sometimes hear Christians saying, your will be done, as a form of surrender to God. But the marvellous Kingsley Barrett points out that too often this is a move of last resort. We're facing some crisis, we've lost our job, a marriage on the rocks, a pandemic has destroyed all of our plans and dreams. So we say, okay, over to you, God, your will be done. But Barrett says there's two problems here. First, it implies that God's will is the last-ditch choice, like to be avoided at all costs. And secondly, it means we've tried everything we know to get our own will. And only when all of that fails spectacularly do we say, okay, God, I can't have my way. I suppose you better have yours. As opposed, of course, to living the way Jesus lived. Realising God's will is the best thing we can do. And because of that, and because we love God, we want to do it. All of that and much more besides is wrapped up in that single phrase, your kingdom come. But we have to move on. Next up, bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, the Lord's Prayer is a series of requests. Up until now, they've all been about God. That God's name be hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done. But then they switch to being about us. Give us bread, forgive us, lead us. And bread stands at the transition point. At its simplest, here we're being taught by Jesus that there's nothing we shouldn't pray for, from the coming of the kingdom to having enough to eat today. This reminds us of our dependence on God, without whom we'd have nothing. But it's not just about stotties or sourdough. Bread features a lot in the Bible. Remember in the Old Testament when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and had no food and God provided them with manna, that miraculous bread which only lasted for one day 
apart from the Sabbath. So they had to go out every morning and collect it afresh. I remember the time Jesus blessed five loaves and a couple of fish and it was enough to feed 5,000 hungry people. Or the Last Supper on the night before he died when Jesus takes bread, breaks it and says to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Bread is concrete and symbolic. On the concrete side, we're to ask God to give us bread, but only for today. Or maybe, as the scholar Joel Green says, it's like manna in the wilderness. We're asking for bread for today, but with the promise that tomorrow will definitely bring enough bread too. That we can trust God to ask only for what we need for today. And on the symbolic side, we're asking for something much more. Because this request overcomes that gap between the physical and the spiritual. As Steve Croft says, we are praying for real bread for our real bodies, but also praying for Jesus, the living bread, food for our souls. Okay, on to the next word, just two left. Forgive. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. That's Luke. Matthew says, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, there are two key differences worth looking at. First question, sins or debts? Well, apparently in everyday Greek, debts were used as a metaphor if you were talking about moral or religious failings. And actually in Luke's gospel, there's often a connection between cancelling debts and forgiving sins. The theologian John Nolland reckons the whole idea of cancelling debts was pretty revolutionary at the time. This was a society based on patronage and people being bound to each other by all kinds of obligations. So I guess to cancel a debt for no good reason wasn't just to lose money, but to lose a hold over someone else and to free them from that hold. Like today, we might think, for example, of someone who owns money, owes money to a loan shark or a gangster, which they can't repay. That puts them in their power. Or think of the traffickers who smuggle people into this country and tell the victims they then owe them thousands for the journey. So then they become slaves until they can repay it, which of course they never can. To cancel a debt has huge implications, but so too does forgiveness freely given. Then there's the question of the as or for. The Lord's Prayer that we use in services says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, which I once heard someone describe as the most frightening sentence in the English language. So does this really mean God will only forgive us in the same way or to the same extent that we forgive other people? I think we have to assume not, because to be honest, if God treats me the way I treat other people, I'm in big trouble. And so are you, however nice you are. But it doesn't mean there's no connection between giving and receiving forgiveness. If we live our lives never forgiving other people, constantly bearing grudges or blaming other people for everything, how do we look God in the eye and ask him to forgive us? Mind you, if that's how we live our lives, we may not be rushing to ask for forgiveness, as we're convinced we're not in the wrong. The truth is, most of us are rather better at seeing the problems with other people's behaviour than we are with our own. I know I am. That's why it's so important to have regular times when we ask the Spirit to show us our failings and ask God for forgiveness and keep repenting and keep asking however much we don't want to or are fed up doing it. Because as P. Gregg says, you cannot be too bad, too broken, 
or too boring for God's unconditional love, only too proud to acknowledge how desperately you need it. Ask and you will receive. Take one step towards the Father, he'll come running towards you. One of the consequences of sin is that it separates us from God and other people. So forgiveness is about reconciliation between us and others and us and God. And these are connected because it's only by the grace of God that we really can forgive. There are many examples of people forgiving astonishing wrongs. Many of you will remember Gordon Wilson, whose daughter was killed in the Enniskillen bombing, and a few hours later was able to say of the bombers, I bear no grudge. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. But you know, I'm also very conscious I'm talking about forgiveness. Shortly after, a report was published showing just how badly our church has failed many victims of abuse. So where does this leave you if someone's abused you or done you a terrible wrong and you don't feel ready or able to forgive them? If that's you, please hear this very clearly. The Lord's Prayer does not mean that if you can't forgive your abuser, God will not forgive your sins. It just does not mean that. Forgiveness is rarely easy or instant and it's not a condition of God's love. This is spelled out in the Church of England document specifically on forgiveness and reconciliation in the wake of abuse. It says this, the words on forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer need to be read as the prayer of the whole church, seeking to be like the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit, not asserting a claim on God's forgiveness based on our individual performance of it. I think that reminds us of something important about the Lord's Prayer as a whole. Note that when the focus shifts from God to humans, it doesn't shift to me, it shifts to us. This is a prayer for us as a community, a prayer for God to transform us and the whole world, because we sure can't do it on our own. Okay, the final word is temptation, and lead us not into temptation. This is a weird one, because like, why would God want to lead us into temptation? Well, there could be a whole sermon just on that, but I'll spare you it tonight. There's an ecumenical version of the Lord's Prayer, agreed between different churches, where this line reads, save us from the time of trial. And that's a pretty good take. The Greek word translated here as temptation has a range of meanings, but it's probably more like a trial, not like a legal trial, more like a situation where you're put under a lot of pressure. One scholar points to Jesus thinking about the suffering he will soon face and suggesting the disciples pray that they might be spared the same kind of trial. Another one says that scripture portrays two kinds of temptations. There's the one we normally think of, a struggle between good and bad choices. And there's another deeper temptation with much higher stakes, where we're tempted to deny God, either by walking away or by displacing him from the centre of our lives and playing God ourselves. But however we interpret this, we're asking God to protect us from that which would take us away from him and from his love. And that's a great prayer. Okay, that's our six words. There is so much in this wonderful prayer. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, says that the Lord's Prayer is simple enough to be memorised by small children, and yet profound enough to sustain a whole lifetime of prayer. So can I encourage you to use the Lord's Prayer more in your prayer life? Starting this week, could you say it each day in your prayer time? 
And maybe each day, reflect on one of those six words. Father, hallowed, kingdom, bread, forgive, temptation. And see what happens. But you know, as always, be very careful what you pray for. Because if God says yes to the request in the Lord's Prayer, stand back and wait for the world to change beyond all recognition. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.